Would you stand as we read from God's word before we teach it? I'm going to begin by reading, starting in Luke chapter 12, uh, some verses, uh, skipping a few, starting with verse 49 of 12, just to help you understand the context and then the first seven verses uh, of Actually, I'm going to just read the first five verses at this point, and we'll pick up the others along the way of Luke 13. Here now from God's Word, Jesus speaking. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Verse 55, and when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Chapter 13, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans' blood whom Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we tend to love words from you that we call pleasant. But we believe because of your grace in showing your face to us that all your words will lead to pleasantness if we will but hear and discern the present times according to truth. Would you do that this morning as we look to your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. We come this morning to uh, a type of Jesus' parables that we really didn't look much at when I did a few months ago the series uh, on parables. And those are instead of the parables of grace and the parables of the kingdom, the parables of judgment. And so I thought being fair to Jesus and good to us, though it may not seem that way, uh, that we ought at least look at one of the parables of judgment while 
I am with you. In this initial section of chapter 13 about uh, the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, I'll explain it more in a moment, but one of the questions that needs to be asked in terms of that setting is, is Jesus being warned of the dangers in Jerusalem? Is that why they're telling him about this? Uh, whether they're telling him because they don't want him to get hurt in Jerusalem uh, and they love him or whether it's some of the religious leaders from Jerusalem that have come up to him and uh, want to keep him out of Jerusalem because they don't want his movement to grow. Uh, we don't know exactly the motivation of behind these statements. But it's fascinating if you look at this text and think about what it says about the world in that day and the world in ours. Um, there's nothing new under the sun. Some at the time thought that getting rid of Pilate would solve the problems, maybe even bring in the kingdom. And that's why there were Galilean zealots protesting at the Passover time when there were crowds in Jerusalem. Surprise, surprise, protests. Can you imagine that in the capital city during a big event? And others just had to do what they thought was right, even if it condemned others too harshly and too wrongly, but there's a political dynamic and the players could fit in any stage and on any stage in any age. And so paraphrasing Jesus, uh, I want to say to us this morning, if we seek the vain glory of an impossible without Jesus' cross, good future. In other words, a utopia that we could bring in without the cross of Jesus. Virtue signaling by gathering our crowds to that end. Or if we seek vainly glory by over-defending an always flawed past that we don't want to admit is flawed. So that our past, our national history or whatever it be at a point in history, doesn't need the cross. Either way, Jesus says we're being self-righteous and we too will perish. Because there's no self-righteousness from what we can do or from what we can bring in that brings the glory to God, the glory to God which comes with the cross. In this setting, Jesus risked greatly by refusing to side with Pilate uh, or refusing to side with the Galilean moral patriots. And really, it's kind of amazing that he didn't get killed sooner when he refused to side with any group. Instead, he pushed them in a different way, reminding them that judgment and death ultimately are the real clarifier of things. Uh, I've said it before, I say it again. Uh, the statistic on death is still one out of one. Uh, in case you've forgotten that, uh, uh, that really is a helpful reminder. Moses told us, teach us to number our days. Spurgeon, often, and some thought he was morbid, uh, lay in his bed at night going to sleep and would put his hands across his chest and picture himself with a flower in his hands in his coffin. And he wasn't thinking glumly. He was reminding himself that whatever days God gives me, I've got to number them in devotion not to my self-righteousness, but to the righteousness of Christ.
on the cross. During my 2017-2018 services interim pastor at Covenant Nashville, uh, my colleague Billy Barnes uh, preached from Ecclesiastes 4 so well at our fellow colleague uh, David Dunham's memorial service. It was a hard day. And from Ecclesiastes 4, Billy preached uh, on this theme, it's better to be at a funeral than a party. It's better to be at a funeral than a party. It doesn't mean parties are bad, that we shouldn't have them. But if we're not careful, we want all parties and when we, we want to avoid facing death. And our culture is so good at not wanting to look at death and not wanting to look at judgment that we're practiced at it. We don't need more practice. We probably need to go to more funerals. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, I like the old custom, it goes back certainly to other parts of the world, but uh, in my years uh, in the South uh, at Reform Seminary in Jackson, so many churches with generations of family buried in the churchyard was the churches wanted people as they came into church and went out of church to see the graves of those who'd gone before them and see where theirs would be. Because part of the goodness of the gospel is remembering that the statistic is just one out of one, apart from the glory of Jesus. If you're new to UPC or even new to considering whether Jesus is worth trusting, uh, we say often, and I mean it, I'm thrilled you're here. Uh, I pray that, uh, as Rick said so well last week, that we'd be so hospitable uh, to people, whether they agree with us or disagree with us, that they're just going to want to hang out with us. Uh, because there is a realistic party going on amongst us that wants to include everybody because the stakes are so high. But I want to remind each of us that none of us is as far along in learning to trust wisely as we think we are. I mean, don't we waffle in our trusts? Rick talked about that last week. Uh, every trust we have is faith-based. Don't let the world lie to you, whether it be in modern science. I was reading a marvelous book, won't bother to tell you about the book, but it was fascinating. The writer, without making too much of it, because who knows what will happen, uh, referenced two articles in major scientific journals in the last two or three years, you probably haven't heard about them, where legitimate scientists were questioning core things in the Big Bang Theory. Now, if you know anything about the philosophy of science, that shouldn't surprise you. But the world wants you to believe that the Big Bang Theory is, tells it all. But good scientists, and I got to minister amongst many of them at MIT, uh, the hardest thing for many of them to come to faith is that they know everything changes, including science. And some of the most golden ideas held have been radically adapted. Now, I have no idea whether the Big Bang Theory in its present form will last or not last. I just want to make the point that uh, it may not, and that's okay. Paradigm shifts come radically, and things have not always been the same. The world's trying to tell you they are in science, and they won't stay the same either. So Christians are really foolish when we bank our interpretations of Scripture on unstable things in science, which sometimes turn out not to be true. Though science is wonderful, and in its journey, what blessings we give thanks to God for the skills God has given human beings to 
study, and actually the study of science the way we know it, came from Christians who believed the world was orderly and that you could study it because there was reliability that could come up with theorems that could be proved out or tested out uh, by experience or by experiments uh, to where there was a high probability of being wise and leaning on them. But the bottom line question, uh, no matter what we're trusting in, is whether or not what we trust in is worthy of the trust. And we, with good and rational warrant at UPC, believe that there's warrant for trusting that what Jesus says is absolutely true. And one of the reasons we read the Scripture is not because it tells us we're doing so well. Have you noticed that? I mean, somebody said the Bible is a book that if man could have written, he wouldn't have because it doesn't make us look very good. But we read it every week here and preach it because we know we need the reminders to see what we're like and how we're waffling and trusting in the most important things. Jesus is reminding all that neither Pilate nor the beaten Galileans at the temple nor Jesus' hearers, none of them made a world out of nothing like the eternal Son of God, Father, and Spirit did. And we're each indebted to someone greater than Pilate or the Galilean protesters. In fact, if you want a simple hook, I'm not going to say it much, but it's the background that our real debt is owed to God, whether we acknowledge it or not. And this text, Jesus tells us in the paragraph we haven't read, that payment for that debt may be called today. Jesus in this parable of judgment and its lead up is asking, who's right anyway? Uh, Is Pilate right? Are the Galileans right? And Jesus, I said to you, has a different answer. Whose world is it anyway? No, you're all indeed David in Psalm 51 against you and you only God have I sinned. And Jesus wasn't crucified for being a wise teacher or a religious genius or for stirring up a large but peaceful, generally worldwide following. He was crucified for saying the self-righteous, those who try to find righteousness by what we as human beings can do on our own, the self-righteous, those who are rebellious against God, would all perish. And he undermined all self-generated social authority. You want to know why people don't like Jesus, why a lot of ideologies don't like Jesus, is he undermines all self-generated authority. He's always pushing every man, woman, and child in every culture and every ethnicity to look for where real authority comes from and that it's a stewardship, not a power. And we don't like to hear that. The two events in verses 1 through 5 fit the times of the political actors. Pilate was harsh. He preemptively put down potential rebels. even attacking Jewish protesters of his water aqueduct project near Jerusalem, the Pool of Siloam, which we'll look at in just a moment. The Galileans included rebellious zealots. But one thing we know as we look at this Siloam verses in a minute is that Pilate had built a needed public works project in a water system. That kind of engineering is useful, isn't it, when cities are are growing? Fix an engineer, if you didn't know that. And so far, so good, but Alfred Edersheim, in his book on uh, the life of Jesus, records, uh, citing some of the 
early sources that Pilate garnished the money to pay for the public water system from the temple treasury. That would have been like taking money from Rome's, uh, the Roman Catholic Church's bank accounts uh, uh, without their permission uh, to build a project uh, somewhere else in Italy. And so the Galileans uh, may have been there protesting this violation of biblical law by the king of the Jewish nation. And when abundant crowds and abundant animal sacrifices were there to protest Pilate, Pilate often cloaked his soldiers, uh, uh, think of the Star Trek cloaking uh, thing, uh, and underneath the cloak they have their swords and their cudgels. And at the right moment they decide, okay, we're sat there sacrificing animals, I'm going to sacrifice a few of them with their blood because they're out to get me and I'm going to move them out of the way. And the report may, as we said, have been a warning to Jesus to avoid things. But Jesus adds this second event to their first in verse 4 of the text, reminding them about uh, the 18 that were killed when uh, a tower uh, that was in the Siloam pool area uh, fell. And many think that, though we don't know, but it is a reasonable supposition, uh, that that was part of the water project. And when that tower fell on workers who were getting money to pay their wages from the temple money that it wasn't right to use for that, that God judged them. And Jesus says, do you think they were worse than any of the rest of you sinners? And that that's why God judgment, God's judgment fell on them? Uh, speculation, but clearly behind Jesus' words, uh, is the idea, do you think that they were worse offenders, worse sinners, from verse 2? And that points to an all-too-common human error, the one made by Job's friends. Remember Job's friends? They said he had to do something wrong because God only judges people that do something wrong. Now, what I've noticed as a pastor is that I and you have not gotten over that kind of thinking. It creeps back in. We start wondering. Remember Jesus' disciples who came to him in John 9, regarding the man born blind and said, who sinned, the man or his parents? How did he end up blind? They assumed that calamity equals the judgment of God. So as the first subpoint in the first heading, I'm saying to you, don't assume that calamity equals judgment. Most of the time you'll be wrong. You just can't go there. We all tend to think that, and it's very tempting to become hard-hearted. I think I've told you when I was first here of my 17-year-old only brother when I was about 12 was killed by the driving error of a woman driving the Hamilton Journal newspaper's delivery van to throw the bundles out on the corner and he fell out of the back of the van backwards, arced through the air and landed on his head on the pavement and died about 12 hours later. And my parents made the difficult choice against a lawyer they'd talked to's recommendation not to sue. But my parents, who I thought didn't know much about God, decided to use this event from their heart to say that God is in charge. And they bought a family plot at the cemetery with a big marker that said O'Dowd and simply had a cross. And underneath the cross it said, Thy will be done that we prayed this morning. And instead of becoming bitter, though it affected all of our lives and me deeply, uh, they were a pointer to why I'm who I am that I didn't even realize 
until after I had fully come to Christ. But calamity often, truly most often, doesn't equal judgment. Sunday, May 7th, 2000, James Montgomery Boyce spoke to his 10th Presbyterian, now PCA congregation. I'd been with him the Wednesday of Easter week. And on Good Friday, April 21st, he got a cancer diagnosis that he thought would be fatal. And it turned out to be true and quick. And he said to the congregation, uh, should you pray for a miracle on May 7th when he told them about it? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that the God who is able to perform miracles, and certainly he can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying Himself in history and you say, where in history is God most glorified? Where has He most glorified Himself? The answer is that He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about that. And I think that's why my colleague Billy prayed, funerals are better than parties. Because how thankful are we for Jesus' funeral? that shows us the glory of God in a way that nothing else could. And Jim Boyce died just about five weeks later on June 15th. But occasionally uh, calamity does give an appearance, and this is what tempts us appointing to judgment. Uh, If I shared this with you, uh, you can laugh again. I read of a not recent uh, but real news article in a prominent Czech Republic uh, Prague newspaper It reported about one Vera Chermak, who when she learned that her husband had betrayed her with another woman was distraught and leapt from their third floor apartment window. The paper reported that Mrs. Chermak was recovering well in the hospital, having landed on top of her unfaithful husband who was coming into the building and he was killed instantly. Now that's tempting. But even then, I wouldn't bet money on it. We just don't know often. In broad stroke, we know the kind of things God's judgment comes upon and that there are consequences to things. But don't assume calamity equals judgment. But remember that attitudes, actions, and even inactions do bring consequences. Even though specific calamities don't equal judgment, Our actions and our attitudes do bring consequences. Jeremiah, Paul, others, uh, Jesus, tell us that actions do have risk and consequences. God's final judgment will come when Christ returns, but the reality of legitimate consequences from Negative actions or negative responses and reactions often shows in this life. If we, if we drink, smoke the wrong stuff, use drugs wrong, we misuse our cell phones while we're driving, we may hurt ourselves and others. Actions have consequences. Some of those things are straight applications from God's Word. Some of them are just common sense that we learn with wisdom about how life works. But the Scripture is very clear on some things. If we are sexually active beyond God's biblical marriage boundary between marriage between a man and a woman 
for this powerful, beautiful, new life-bearing gift of sexuality, there are going to be consequences for individuals in sexuality. As I read the words I wrote, I thought, you know, those sounded different 20 years ago than they sound in our ears today. Because we want to be so careful not to offend, and I want to be careful not to offend, but I simply want to say to you that God's Word tells us, be offended. Because there are consequences, and the loving thing is to say that there are consequences. If you spread yourself around sexually outside of marriage, before marriage or after, during, you won't have much left that belongs only to you and to your faithful spouse. I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say it. It was only God's grace, let me say this first, that I was a virgin when I got married. And so was Mary now. There's no bragging in my saying that. I can't tell you how close my stupidity you know, led me into stepping into sexual activity before that. But I want to tell you, with all my flaws, one thing I delight in is that Mary Nell and I think of no one else in the marriage bed. And the glue that that provides the way God desires it. Because I don't want sex. I want to be with my wife with whom I've shared pain and joy. And that's the kind of bond that the marriage covenant is supposed to bring. And we are seeing the consequences of thinking we can do what we want without consequences. In broken marriages, broken hearts, broken children's hearts. And we're so used to it, we think it's normal. Part of what I took on with my ordination, John Piper described it as when a man's ordained, you tie him to the mast and tell him, tell us what we need to hear even when we tell you to stop telling us. And I'm not bragging when I say that. But that's the reality. Specific behaviors in God's world have specific and legitimate consequences. And too many sow their wild oats, as a friend told me years ago, sexually, and then pray for a crop failure. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And that doesn't short-circuit the grace of God, which is here in abundance for any who want it. But it's a reality that even with the grace of God, we bear the pain of many of our experiences. Secondly, whose vineyard is it anyway? And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. This is the parable of judgment. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So trees and people are planted to bear fruit. The creator is personally involved in his creation. The man had a vineyard. He planted a fig tree for a reason. God planted Israel for a reason. He had expectations Jerusalem and the temple existed for a reason. God had expectations on how they were to treat the Gentile worshipers, and we've talked about it before. Jesus cleaned out the temple because they'd made a den of robbery and overpriced animals for sacrifice in the court of the Gentiles, where the God-fearing Gentiles who were trying to find God were being kept from the very place God had told them to build the temple for. 
Life is not the result of random molecules going bump in the night. And it's not okay to fill your days randomly either. God has expectations. And so the owner said to the vine dresser who's taking care of the vineyard and the tree, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this tree, this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? That's why this is called a parable of judgment. It's a parable. But the leaders knew that Jesus was talking about Israel, and they didn't like it. And fruit is expected in its season. Israel had been planted for a long time, and early years of getting ready to bear fruit had passed. It was in danger of being cut down, and in 70 A.D. it was. And God plants churches too. Read the letters to the churches in Revelation if you haven't in a while. You file this under what the church has called sanctification, to be sanctified, holy, set apart. And it has at its practical core devotion. You know why I like most of my doctors, and I don't keep them if this isn't true? They're devoted to medicine. I had a conversation with my dentist. I didn't like what she was doing to me, uh, but after it was done and I've got to go back, uh, you know, she was going to uh, do uh, some kind of internship, and I thought, you know, she's been at this a lot of years, so what kind of internship? Well, she's learning to do implants. She's always learning new things. I love that. She's devoted to it. If we're devoted to Jesus, we, we trust doctors. We trust others that spend three, four, seven years learning stuff. It doesn't take them a whole lifetime, though they stay devoted to it. How long do you call yourself a disciple? How long do I call myself a disciple? And oh, I could tell you my failures. But I pray that I'll continually be re-stirred in my devotion to get into His Word, to seek to step into relationships based on what I learned in His Word. Is that what's going on in your life, or is this a good checkup for you this morning, like a doctor's office, from one who's imperfect but trying to be devoted to the Word of God and to you? So why should it use up the ground? Use of resources creates expectations. God has appropriate expectations. His fig trees taking up space using up nutrients. What kind of fruit? Fruit in keeping with gospel nutrients, fruit of repentance. What are we, we repenting of? Worldliness, which seeks the pleasures gained from money, power, sex, subcultural acceptance. We need to repent of seeking acceptance there and find it in our identity in Christ, find it in Christ. We need to change our minds and hearts and devotions toward the pleasure which comes from God when we return His unmerited love for us and share it with our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Jesus is speaking to and about Israel's leaders who loved the pleasures of power from both offerings and theological authority and lorded it over the people. Um, what do we most need to repent of? What Jesus addresses, not seeing God as God, ourselves as bent and tempted. If you don't see yourself as bent at heart and tempted, I tell you, repent. Get rid of that bad idea. You are bent. You are tempted. And you need to be aware of it or you'll follow the temptations without even knowing there were temptations. Not seeking most of all God's pleasure 
in how he is loved by us, not giving deep mutual respect to people groups and varieties of gifts and varieties in intelligence and knowledge, stirring up factions as we do sometimes to find righteousness in our group. Gospel repentance and gospel soil measure success by the kind of disciples we're becoming, not in buildings or budgets. New creation standards delight in the number of people regularly repenting. It's a less efficient way of doing church, counting hearts that repent, than counting nickels and noses that build buildings and make the numbers higher. But I've seen lots of organizations and churches with big numbers of people and money and not a lot of hearts that are soft. One thing I've loved about being here is I think the pressures of what God led you through have tenderized hearts. I see some of the search committee out there. God tenderized your guys' hearts, didn't he? I mean, he ru- iron sharpens iron. I mean, it's hard work, it's beautiful work. The fruit is, I think, beautiful. But, but this is what we're called to. And, and all of these things are, you know, what is pornography? It seeks pleasure separated from a person to love and cherish. Abortion on demand seeks pleasure without commitment, without the ongoing cost of wealth and freedom that a baby brings. One of the biblical expectations for marriage, which while dependent on God, not us, is a creation pattern of children. And I weep for those who long for them and can't have them. But God hasn't changed that pattern. We're not all of a sudden so smart that we can say with what we know about the world and the physical realities right now, we shouldn't have kids. But we got a lot of people by the thousands and millions around the world that are being sold a bill of goods in that area and are getting hurt. And as they get older, I watch them get hurt and feel more hurt. Jesus says, repent, all of you, each of you, or perish. Lay down the old life. Verse 8, with this short section, we're done. And the vineyardman says to the owner, Sir, let it alone, the fig tree, this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What's the owner going to do next? Uh, It's amazing, forbearance. I mean, you wonder where grace is in this parable? It's right then. I mean, if the vineyardman points, and it does not in an allegorical kind of way, but it points to Jesus and what he has done in his ministry with Israel. And what is the vineyardman saying when he says he's going to dig around it? He says he's going to dig around it, and what do you put on plants and trees after you dig around them? Fertilizer. And what's one of the things most fertilizer does? Ew. Stinks. And those of us who are involved in showing mercy and grace in others' lives, we got to get into the stink. And sometimes we think, I got enough stink in my own life. I don't want to get involved with people. <laughs> they stink too. I wish I had time to tell you about Gwen Olean, uh, one of the ones in my church in Tampa that I was mad at God for a long time for taking her home early. I just didn't understand it. She led so many to people, people to Christ in the four years she fought bone cancer. Just amazed me. And, and she went out and 
cleaned up the bedroom and the bathroom uh, for an older woman who had visited our church's house when her own family wouldn't do it. And just loved her. And Gwen died and that woman came to our seniors ministry with a smile on her face to hear about Jesus every month. And when her family wouldn't take care of her, our deacons took cover, took care of her. And Gwen got in the manure with her and the smell of her urine and loved her and sang Jesus loved me into her ears. And Gwen died and the woman got well. That's the beauty. That's what Jesus does. Surprising mercy and forbearance. But he will make final judgments, 70 AD. The judgment on Israel came. And I know people argue about interpretations of Scripture in there, this area, but I believe if you read the New Testament well, uh, national Israel is never according to the Spirit, ever going to be the center of God's kingdom on earth. That doesn't mean God doesn't still care about the Jewish people. Too much to say to even begin to say more. But it's Israel according to the Spirit of the gospel, Jew and Gentile together, that will be in the new heaven and the new earth. And and a lot of the books that were written back in the 70s uh, I still keep them because it's kind of like a museum, but they're not very good theology. Ask me about that, but forget it for now. Whose world is it anyway? Whether you try to forget or deny it, it's always and only God's world. I end with this. Scotland, I'm told, had years ago at least one disreputable lawyer. I'm glad you're laughing. You caught that. But in days before cars, he had hired himself a horse, and whether through accident or ill use, the horse died while it was in his possession. He acknowledged his liability, but told the owner that he was hard up for cash and asked the lender if he would accept a promissory note. The owner thinks, he's a lawyer, I'll take it. And a gracious man, he said, certainly, and the lawyer requested also a long date for the payment. The creditor said, you may fix your own time. And the wicked lawyer wrote and signed the note as payable on the day of judgment. That was in the day when scriptural phrases meant more in the culture than they do now, and the lawyer thought he was being very shrewd. And he's like a lot of us. We think we can keep rewriting our contract with God as if we write the covenant in the first place. And being put off again and again, the creditor finally took the man before the local judge. And the lawyer pleaded with the judge for more time, asking his honor to look at the note carefully, and the judge studied the careful wording. And here was the judge's response. The promissory note is perfectly good, sir. And I also rule that today is the day of judgment. Brothers and sisters, we live in a tough day when in all of our institutions people are trying to avoid any final judgment for anything. No law is solid, no arrest promises 
even being taken to trial. No constitutional phrase stands for anything. You are being tempted to believe there is no final judgment. I say to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, today just might be the day.